0: to the last Negroes at Harvard podcast. I'm Kent Garrett. There were 18 of us in the Harvard college class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and we are now pushing 80. We have survived Jim Crow, the civil rights struggle, the Vietnam War, the war on drugs, the war on terror, the war on poverty, the age of Obama, and now the age of Trump. We have a lot to say before we leave the planet. In this episode, our classmate, psychiatrist Ezra Griffith, joins us to talk about his book, Race and Excellence, my dialogue with Chester Pierce. And we talk about belonging. Did we feel that we belonged at Harvard? On the call with us are classmates Jeffrey Fox, Nason Morfitt, Jerry Secundi, Connie McDougall, John Woodford, Greg Allen, Roger Goldman, George Jones, Fred Easter, and Marcy Benstock. So with us, we have Ezra Griffith uh, with us, and he's going to talk about race and excellence. It's a book that I read back in 2009, which was really great then and relevant. And I think it's still relevant, uh, quite relevant today to what we're going through. So Ezra, tell us about the book. Tell us how you wrote it. Tell us why you picked uh, uh, Chester Pierce.
1: I hope that uh, you you all can see this picture because I'd like you to have some at least physical notion of Chester Pierce. Is that coming mm-hmm. through? Yeah.
2: Yes.
3: Yes. 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 Yeah.
1: All right. So so you're seeing Chester Pierce. Chet is um Chet was, because he died a few years ago, six foot four. So you can see that picture. He was, that- he was taller than you then, huh? I I, I, recognizing the source of the comment, I would just let it pass.
2: (laughs) Good move, good move. Uh, Um,
1: (laughs) Freddie, you haven't changed, man. (laughs) No. (laughs) So Chester Pierce came to my training program at Albert Einstein College of Medicine when I was probably in my second year of specialty training in psychiatry. And he gave a lecture, and he gave his lecture sitting down. And he talked for an, an hour. It ended on the hour, and then we had questions. And uh, he, he, he lectured without a single note. And it reminded me, really, of the specialist lecturers, the performance lecturers I had I had met throughout my training, uh, both at Harvard and, and in medical school. I mean, it was absolutely spectacular and he left me with my mouth open because there were no ahs or o's or any of those he- hesitancies. And yet the, the different paragraphs of the lecture were absolutely recognizable. It was so, it was so um, performative. Absolutely fantastic. So I met around seventy-five or seventy-six, and I uh, became interested once I once I went up to Yale from New York City. I was very 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 interested in in talking about uh, single lives and particularly about single Black lives. I spent a lot of time thinking about that, and that partly motivated uh, my. Interesting getting into the Department of African American Studies, where I, I taught uh, undergraduate and graduate courses on, on um, biography and autobiography. And it's because of my preoccupation then with uh with, with, with writing about people, and from yes, from a psychological point of view, but very attentive into developing my own style and so on and techniques that um, I I decided to to do a book on him and and to talk about his life. You will feel some kindred spiritual stuff because he has a BA from Harvard, 1948, uh, uh, MD from Harvard, 1952. And I reminded myself this morning that he was in Lowell House. So... He and so he he knew Elliot Perkins uh, quite well. Grew up uh, he grew up in, in grew up in, in 1927 in Glen Cove. He was born in 1927 in Glen Cove, uh, Long Island. Uh, it's a community at that time of about 8,000 people, 25 miles from New York City. The life there was uh, very happy, pleasant, minimal racial strife. Um, but then he got into thinking about lots of stuff about race and so on. And I'll talk to you about his life and his experiences that later on, it's interesting. It was interesting to, to note that he, uh, was born from Samuel Pearson, Hedy Armstrong. I tell you this just because, just, just because I, you know, it's nice to ground yourself in in, in a certain direction in thinking about him because it, it, he, he is a single life and and his, although he was very influential in the dimensions of race and their psychological and racism and his psychological impact, um, it's also interesting to think about how he grew up as a person and, and, and uh, his early experiences because the early experiences were not uh of the ones you would have thought would have sensitized someone uh to to being so interested in the race question very little i'll tell you about the the parents but samuel pierce the father he is a an intriguing character born in virginia in 1884 and moving up to new york city when he was a, a young adolescent and the Interesting fact about him is that he worked at a country club in North Shore uh, from very early on until he died in 1943. And his philosophy all came out of the country club experience. I was worth mentioning that that country club experience, um, he obviously the country club, hence the term country club, it was a country club uh, for white people and he was a jack-of-all-trades in that club for uh for several decades and um, his experiences were just absolutely incredible chet talked about him and say that he could get he could get to anybody in the highest parts of uh, the united states organized uh, life uh in about 24 48 hours in other words (laughs) samuel pierce had become beloved and had integrated himself as a black man into the, all the power structures of the United States through his club, his club experience. So the notion of the club, he and I, Chad and I talked about it for a lot, and a lot of it came from the fact that this was this black man, and there was no question about his the 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 club obviously uh, was by custom a segregated club, but um, he. He had lots of things that he learned there from people and, and, um, and, and tried to pass it on to his children. He, the, the wife, Hetty Armstrong, this is a sort of uh, an important fact in a way, but then important later on as you think about other things, Hetty Armstrong, um, North Carolina, and she brings with her uh, a mixed background. There's Native American on this, the, her father's side and also on the mother's side. So that's interesting because it, it has to do also with the way the, the Pierce brothers look physically. Uh, they're very imposing, very good looking, and then with a, a interesting hue to their their uh, to their skin color, a sort of like, uh, a sort of reddish tinge that comes from the mixture of um, the, uh, the Native American stuff. All right, I'm going to. I'm going to uh, just, I guess, just a couple of minutes on the structure of the text. This, this text then, he is, he is about 15 years ahead of me in, in our experiences. Fascinatingly similar at some points and different in other points. So, so I grew up in, in Barbados. That comes up in everything I write. Even now, um, it it I know it's influenced my thinking about race in this country because race in the Caribbean is a different concept. It's not better. It's 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 it's, it's different. Worse in some ways, better in some ways than what you encounter in uh, in, in the U.S. But that's it. He he. So he's coming up. He, he's growing up in Long Island. I'm growing up in, in, in Barbados. I'm about 15 years behind him. We do undergrads at Harvard. We're both in uh, Lowell House, 15 years apart. We both do medicine. We both do psychiatry. And interesting finding, he actually is, becomes president of several professional associations. And I follow that pathway and become president of the same associations and then do lots of work in uh, the, the major association, American Psychiatric Association, which is predominantly white and run by whites, um, segregated in the early years. Then blacks come in and, and do their thing, and and just Pierce leaves quite a mark on the American Psychiatric Association, very active uh, in, and, in, and influential in the political scene within the organization, and to some extent, um, I am imitative of that, yet we differ in some significant ways, and that comes up in the stuff that I'm writing. So the technique that I wanted to use, you don't see it often in books, but I, try, I tried it, and uh, you know, you have to read it in order to tell me whether you think it's been successful. But um, we, I, I, I essentially try out his story and see what I like about it, what I don't like about it and, um, and, and where, where, it would take, where it would take us. And so I went up to Cambridge, and met in his office at the School of Education every Friday for, uh, for about two years. So let me start the first one. There are two short passages. Um, the, the first one is a couple of pages, and then after that, the second one is, is shorter. I started in 1947. 1947, in his senior year, Chet traveled with the football team to play against the University of Virginia. Harvard had told Virginia in 1946 that it intended to have Chet Pierce make the trip. The Southern institution made it clear that he couldn't stay in the same hotel with his teammates, but in a conciliatory gesture, the university still provided a mansion where Chet could sleep. The Harvard coach sent the first uh, two teams, Harvard coach sent the first two teams to stay in the mansion with Chet, but meals presented another problem as they were served only at the hotel and Chet was not allowed to go through the hotel's front door. Once again, the coach and the team stood by him and they all went through the kitchen with their beleaguered teammate. When they finally took the field at game time, the coach was at Chet's side, setting himself up as a target for any missile intended for his black player. Although Harvard lost that game badly, Chet has remained ever proud that Harvard stood his ground that time when he was the first black to play against a white team. The pattern was the same when he played lacrosse against the University of Maryland and Navy teams in Maryland. The Harvard team would buy takeout food so they could eat in the car with Chet, who still couldn't expect to be served in a Southern restaurant in the late 1940s. The game against Virginia was apparently Harvard's first football trip to the South. And the event has been dutifully recorded in Harvard's annals with the accompanying notation that Virginia won <laughs> that Virginia won 47-0. However, Chet thinks it was mere capricious chance that he was a participant in that historic moment and sees no other particular uh, contribution as deriving from him at that point. In his terms, he was practically a bystander, simply watching as his history was being made. I listened attentively to this kind of story because I never had that type of experience growing up. This reality of being told bluntly that I was not allowed to enter someplace because I was black. The British had a different way of doing things. For instance, I knew I was not welcome at the Aquatic Club in Barbados, but in true English fashion, I was not excluded from the club because of some legal rule. I knew it just wasn't done. It simply would have been unthinkable for me to have tried to get in there. This British colonial technique of establishing difference based on race is not the same as prosecuting difference with a racist vengeance. I think the two political approaches result in different psychological impact, with blunt racism being by far the more malignant. Chad and I will doubtless return to this theme, but for the time being, I will not leave it with the hanging implication that West Indian Blacks are superior to American Blacks, which has been a theme, of course, that you all know uh, in in, in American literature and history uh, for some time. Such intra-group competition may serve other interests, but certainly not mine. Nevertheless, I think it's significant that the experience of the overt, is psychologically different from experiencing racial differentiation predicated on cultural rules. So I did not go to the aquatic club, but I had no trouble enrolling at the finest grammar school on the island, since the entrance examination was based on merit. And no one ever told me or any other Black student that intellectual performance was linked to race. Of course, it is also true that Chet did not confront any such barriers in Glen Cove, Indeed, in those formative years, growing up in Glencoe was closer to being rare in Barbados than I was to being raised in Maryland. I must confess that I'm not confident that my view is universally held, even by my Black colleagues and friends. France Fanon would most likely argue that the impact of the colonizer can certainly be, in some cases, quite malignant. I would not object firmly to that assertion, but I still think it is of substantial importance that I was not prevented from obtaining a first-class basic education in colonial Barbados. When one of Chet's closest college friends from a very prominent family decided to get married in the South, the subject of his being invited to the wedding simply never arose. He claims he wasn't angry or bitter because he knew the rules. But that's hard for me to accept so quickly unless one grants that he means externally visible or obvious anger and bitterness. These mini traumas had to be powerful reminders that he was in some ways not quite a Harvard man in the fullest sense. The paradoxical business of being found acceptable while still not being totally accepted haunted Chek in other areas as well. He had roommates at Harvard who were members of private clubs and who talked in front of him about keeping Jews out of their clubs. Still, the question of Chet's becoming a member of any club just never came up, and the general question of Blacks joining such clubs was not a topic of discussion. He concedes that in retrospect, he regretted never having been invited to join the Hasty Pudding. That was a membership he thought he rightfully deserved because in those college days, he was an excellent writer of music, had a solid interest in musical composition, and played a respectable piano, accordion, and trumpet. However, membership in the hasty pudding eluded him, as did the sense of total membership in the Harvard community. And this notion of belonging, we're going to come back to in the discussion, because this is a powerful theme and one that drove me in in, in writing the book, and in fact, in my own scholarship uh, after that. In our continuing discussion of blacks and the phenomenon of then of their belonging to predominantly white institutions. Chet always answers in terms of individuals and not in terms of institutions or organizations. This perspective permits him to show continued respect for groups and institutions like the Hasty Pudding and Harvard, while at the same time maintaining more pronounced suspicion of those individuals in the organizations who wreak microtrauma on minority people and sustain homogeneity of the institution. This word, incidentally, microtrauma, this is an aside, it comes up. Uh, comes up repeatedly because because it now has a common word, um, but Chet was one of the, the the first psychologically thinking people who invented that term. That is, of course, why Chet insisted over the years only a handful of white he has met have not generated suspicion. Now we get into his uh, uh, racialized theorizing. It is possible that besides the urging from his father that he join a black fraternity, the lack of an invitation to join any of the select white Harvard clubs made it easier for him to pledge the all-black Alpha Phi Alpha. In the late 1940s, there was only a graduate chapter of the Alphas in Boston, and it was tottering. Luckily, several of their members had just returned from military service, and they decided to breathe the light back into the chapter. Some of them, such as former U.S. Senator Edward Brooke, recognized that admitting undergraduates directly into the Boston chapter would help renew its lease on life, and Chet was a beneficiary of this new policy. The group provided opportunities for a lively social life, and Chet latched onto the social structure provided by the Alphans. I am reminded of my own refusal to join any Black fraternity when I was at Harvard in the early 60s because I found the violence and cruelty that were part of the hazing process to be unacceptable. I never could understand why I would have to undergo punishment so as to be persuaded of the reality of our black brotherhood. When I asked Jack about this, he points out that he refused ever to be a part of the paddling and he never participated in what he agrees were demeaning practices. I wish I could let go of it more easily, but I realized the depth of my offense at witnessing blacks assault the minds and bodies of other blacks. Black friends told me then, and some still tell me now, that the violence builds mental and physical toughness. I have never been persuaded. Nevertheless, I realized that I have always harbored strong feelings about Harvard's private clubs that systematically excluded Blacks. And it rankled me as much that the Black fraternity is intended to exact the price for my membership. Both contexts offended me and gave weight to my longstanding metaphor of the club. With me standing outside contemplating my fate as an unwelcome guest. Chet's membership in the Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity was one of the activities that he liked and in which he participated as a student. He also belonged to the Arts Association and was an officer in the dormitory and a charter member of the Harvard Key Society. He was a member of the well known service organization called the Phillips Brooks House, under whose auspices he coached a community basketball team. That developed the legendary record of wins over numerous teams. Chet steadfastly pursued his childhood dream of becoming a doctor. He can't put a finger on where he thought, where the thought originated, but he recalls with certainty that even people in his hometown knew he intended to be a physician. So I end that there. And the other shorter thing then, I I hope I hope I hope you are taking mental notes because I know I'm saying things uh to yeah to to uh to, to get the discussion going and, and I, I know so w- w- one of the things that drove me to this whole book and and, to, and trying to think about our, my our relationship uh, my relationship with him was this notion of belonging and he shocked me one day when he told me that he never felt he belonged at Harvard. So all of this leads us full circle to the conclusion that he has never felt welcome at Harvard. I question this assumption with as much vigor as I can muster, and I argue that his achievements belay his opinion. He was an undergraduate and then a graduate student at Harvard. He had He had a postgraduate Whitehead Fellowship for a year. He was a marshal, and consequently, a permanent officer of his senior class. He played on several Harvard varsity teams. He was elected to the Medical School Alumni Council. He has served on three distinct Harvard faculties as a professor. He's even the parent of a Harvard graduate, as his daughter, Diane, graduated from the Harvard Law School. But still, he claims he's never felt he belonged at Harvard. He goes on to recount another vignette. During his first week at the medical school, one of his classmates wanted to visit the business school to see a friend, and Chet agreed to take him there and show him around. At the business school, Chet got separated from his classmate, but the classmate's friend saw Chet and walked over to him and asked Chet if he belonged there. Chet says he was amazed at a white man who had been at the business school only a few days. Could be so relaxed as to question someone else about belonging at Harvard. Chet then hastens to add that he doesn't mean to suggest Harvard has nothing to offer him or other blacks. He can still use an institution like Harvard effectively without really belonging there. This was a fundamental part of his argument. He waxes eloquent to prove his thesis. He recalls his perception as a college undergraduate that he had to struggle more than the white students. He also describes his feeling that he could more easily bond with other black students than with whites because the blacks instinctively understood how as a class they would be treated in certain uh, contexts. He tells of the experience while attending high table in Lowell House when a professor said to him, you black man, where do you come from? Chet argues that the professor could have addressed him as the man wearing glasses, but the professor intended to be demeaning. Chet drives the point home with the following tale. A fellow student once told him that he knew more English than Chet did. When asked why this was evident, the student replied that the fact spoke for itself. Chet was of course struck by the white student's certainty of his own superior knowledge. He adds with a flicker of satisfaction that the student later later flunked out of Harvard. I think that's enough uh, from the reading. And now I, now I turn to j- just a, um, a few minutes of some of the theorizing uh, that came out of my doing the book, my interactions with him, and uh, the way my academic life went uh, for, for quite a while. So one of the major things then that began to preoccupy me uh, was this notion of belonging to an institution. And, and I have argued uh, o- over several decades now that it is, it is an element that is very, very important and that we should consider more seriously in, in, in theorizing along uh, psychological lines and trying to think about uh, integration and so on. And what do I mean by belonging, it, it's this pervasive sense of confidence. And, and I've written at length about the definition of that. I wouldn't bore you with that. But it has to do with this sense of enjoying respect from others, often linked to a context or organization where the body and mind is at, are at ease and in healthful equilibrium. My ultimate argument is that it fosters creativity and productivity. The, organ, the organism flourishes because of this. It may engender a, a sense of ownership of the of the, of the organization and of the or, or, or the or of the organization. And um, when I get philosophical, I, I suggest that it facilitates, and it has a linkage to the concepts of intimacy and ultimately love. And of course, it's powerfully influenced uh, by culture. Now, there are internal and external distinctions related to what things impact on the idea of belonging um the internal things have to do with for example the experience of microaggressions these microaggressions well i've i've, I've given you a wonderful example uh at the, the high table and you know we can talk about that's how everybody feels about the examples that they have in their own lives but the, the whole point of the microaggressions thing is one of these the psychological maneuvers is that it leads to what chet pierce calls defensive and, apologetic thinking in other words you're always you, the, the microaggressions affect the notion of your belonging in the context in which you're operating and uh, my, my last book talks about the notion of the geographic notion of spaces because this is where microaggressions have really an impact it, it affects how you um, how you do in the home space in the workspace in the use of uh, in the leisure space and so on because your ideas, if you let it affect you too much, you're always on the defensive. You're not, you're not open and uh, sharing and magnanimous and so on. You are apologizing for your presence. This is a loss of personal and professional confidence. And Chet's, this is Chet's term now when he talks about it, it makes you do things that verify your own inferiority. And uh, that—that's a term that comes from him that, that I latched onto because it's a very—it's—it's um, a—it's a very very powerful term. And he goes off into describing it. For example, he—he he doesn't like the notion of, of smiling too much um, in in certain contexts uh, because because when you smile, he uh, he has a whole lecture on that of how it, it translates a notion of uh, your own inferiority, and they, you're smiling because you're uncomfortable, and you're trying to please, Well, you, but he, John, you know all the figures in drama, uh, film. There are film scholars who talk about that a lot, with the the, the way people shuffle and all that kind of stuff. Another concept that he introduces is the idea of environmental pollutants, and now this is an external concept, um, because the people around you, for example, the dominant group in integrated and, uh, or, and uh, integrated or organizations, institutions, they can behave in ways that repeatedly raise questions about the non-dominant group members' confidence. And it, it pollutes the atmosphere in which you're operating, the space in which you're operating. And they constantly resort to techniques that limit the non-dominant group members. Uh, this, again, is Chet's language. That's what I'm giving you a sense of. He talks a lot about the notion of uh, the dominant group limiting the non-dominant group members' space, energy, time, and creative potential. He has a wonderful story that he told me once. Uh, it actually comes. It, 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 he he got the idea watching in one at a hotel one day um, the interaction between a white adult woman and a white child. And he actually thinks that the primary uh, reference point for talking about the management of space energy and time and creative potential of somebody else is the interaction between adults and children. So he created the term childism. um, And this, so the woman is sitting there and close by is a, 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 a a young girl and the woman asks the young girl to get up and bring her, I um, uh, think for a cigarette so she can put her cigarette out, an ashtray. So he just describes that. So what the woman's doing is, of course, is controlling this young girl's space and how she, the energy that she will spend and so on, and her cre- manages uh, the time and creative potential of boundaries. So, so um, another metaphor that talks about this belong and it gives a sense is uh, uh, a sense of it is Langston Hughes' poem the welcome table, and I I, I think it's, I'll just leave you with this and this poem is I'm not sure the exact year he was between 1902 and 1967 I think, and I think this poem is somewhere in the twenties. I too sing. American name of the poem is I, comma, two, T O O. I too sing America, I am the darker brother. They send me to eat in the kitchen when company comes, but I laugh and eat well and grow strong. Tomorrow, I'll be at the table when company comes. Nobody will dare say to me, Eat in the kitchen, then. Besides, they'll see how beautiful I am and be ashamed. I too. I'm America. And that I've used, um, again, throughout, throughout, I don't know, the last 15, 20 years as an sort of an explanatory model.
0: What, tell me about his, uh, microaggressions now. I mean, how real is that? When did he develop that? And I think John Woodford probably is, would disagree with this whole sense of, uh, we've had a lot of arguments about microaggressions and, uh, uh, John feels that they're not that significant or they're just, I mean, what's your sense of that, Ezra?
4: Well, I think it just depends. I mean, I for one thing, I think that, see, well, see uh, this fellow uh, Pierce, I happen to know pretty well one of his roommates at Harvard. He's dead now, Bradley Perkins. And um, I would say that the idiots in, the idiosyncrasies of an individual or individuals or two or three individuals, you know, they uh I'm a little leery when they're projected too far to, to a significance that to me they don't necessarily merit. And uh his roommates were quite shocked because so a person when he gets older all of a sudden. Besides that he didn't belong, well, this, I'm not a psychiatrist, but let's say the person behaved as if he belonged and seemed to belong while he was there among his roommates and while he was at Harvard and elsewhere. And then later on in life, he gets a feeling that he didn't. Well, this, to me, this is, uh, I would say it's, it's not to lessen it, but it's idiosyncratic. And to make a theory of belonging, or of uh, some sort of uh, you know racial pattern, socio-economic, whatever you want to call it, is stretching out when projecting one's individual uh, feelings quite widely, broadly, and I would say, thinly.
1: Well. Um, That's why I consented, right, to come and uh, (laughs) accept Kent's Kent's invitation. I'm not surprised by what you said. Obviously, I disagree with you profoundly. (laughs) Um, I can give a couple of examples, though, to get back to to Kent's wish to understand a little bit better. So let's so. I've, I mean, I've collected a few of the stories and then we can hear whether you all think this made any sense or not. But um, one, of, one of them actually comes from a, a Yale professor. Uh, he, the, he, I heard him give his example in a lecture. Uh, he's on the train coming from New York to New Haven. And the, 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 you know, the people are coming on to the he comes in early sitting on the train. And he opens up a, a, a book to do something with. And he also all the, all, just becomes then consumed with this notion of people coming in trying to find a seat. And he examines with some, with some uh, intense intensity the people coming in, look at him, who look at him, and then they go on and go past him. I'm th- obviously, I'm talking about a black professor. Now, you, you may not like this, John, but the, the, uh, obviously he's consumed with the idea that, that you know, he's a sort of unwelcome or people you know, are putting him down in their own heads. One of the fascinating things about this, of course, that there's no clarity, there's no, there's, there's no objective way of proving that people are, well, who are walking past him are actually doing this uh, in a cynical and, and, uh, a horrible way. Uh, but, but, but he's, he's consumed by it. Now where Chad and I agree on this, of course, that what he's doing is spending a lot of time, wasting time. He's actually giving a lot of his energy and own thinking to what people are thinking about him uh, as, right. a, as an inferior person. And that's what you've got to understand. So, so, so obviously this, this, the, the whole point of lecture was to try and help, and I remember that very well it was a lecture to a lot of blacks and black students and so on in the audience and tr- and he 's trying to help them understand first of all the physiology of it because it 's a medical it 's a medical group uh, that when you spend your energy that way you 're using up your you know you 're using up your sympathetic system uh, you know you 're using up a lot of uh, I gotta be careful what words I use because I guess there, I know there's some chemists here who're gonna start telling me I use the wrong words. Um, but, but, but he's he's using you know he's using hormones and so on, um, and the sympathetic system is churning, and uh, and this this is Chet Pierce's theory now. This is at, at the heart of part of the problems that occur then with um, with black males in this country, and that's what causes their um, the, their length of time they live to be shorter than lots of other people is because of all the, the time they waste, like they, like that, and how they eat at the interior of themselves instead of relaxing and saying, you know, the person's going by, that's fine. You know, I don't have to sit next to me. I'm cool. But this example is a powerful example because the same thing goes on. And this is the same thing I've met in students at Yale. I mean, I remember one person coming to argue. I was surprised. He came in very upset and so on. And he said he didn't do well on this exam. And he was sure, he was sure that the people who set the exam, you know, had set the exam to fail him. Now, that's almost bordering. I mean, I'm sure you can paranoia. see Paranoia. Exactly. That's almost bordering on paranoia, except the guy isn't really, you know, he isn't. He, he certainly is not what we would call. It. It's, it's not a paranoid illness. He's functioning and doing pretty well, but 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 yes, there's a tensor paranoia there. And the, and the thing that is worrisome about it, of course, is that he instead of settling down and preparing for the exam, he um, you know he gets concerned about that. The, the 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 whole The whole point is, though, the whole point is that you go through and you have these experiences, and the experiences then change your approach to the daily life the best one Kent I can tell you when I was an intern because I will never forget it was I walking on I was on duty in the hospital I was an intern and I walked onto the elevator and it was an elevator on those days you know it's one of those things you sort of have to People, people in the old hospitals got accustomed to started, well, I was calling out the floor or something because they were used to be. It wasn't in this one where there was an operator, but many of them, they had still had operators. And I walk, I am uh, there in my short white coat, um, a black guy in his white, white, in a short white coat. This white woman walks on and she says to me, uh, fifth floor thinking that I'm operating the elevator. Now that, uh, that is a, that is a microaggression. And it's a microaggression now that is objectively verified. So there are black nurses in the back of the elevator who burst out laughing. And I, I turn around and look at them, but I, somehow it clicked in my head. I was sensitive because you're, the, the nurses, especially when you're a young intern, the nurses all love to see you put down. You know, cause I'm the, phys- you know, I'm a physician and they have this experience of the physicians, especially the young ones, the one just arriving who, who flaunt their standing and all that sort of stuff. Anyhow, they were laughing at the fact that I'd been put down by this woman who thought I was operating the elevator. Uh, there was no way in her mind that she could see me as a doctor in this hospital. And, and yes, if John asked me, well, how was I sure, uh, that's what, that's, that's what these racist experiences do to us. We're sure, because it's a white woman doing it, but of course, as I pointed out to people who do this kind of research, you really, you, you really can't be sure. So if you ask me, is it true that that woman was racist? I, I'm telling you, I don't know, but I certainly felt it. And, oh, and yeah. that's, that's what complicates the thing. And, and, and Chet Pierce's point, is look at all that I'm, I'm using up in this expectation in an experience where I'm not even sure if the woman intended to uh, be racist towards me. The overt stuff has an impact, man, that, that I, I, find, I, I find hard to even conceptualize and to think about. And when I talk to people who have experienced it, it is not... What, what do I say as a you know as a therapist it, it just isn't funny it just isn't funny you can't walk on the same sidewalk as people so when I hear those stories from people I, I've talked to in the south that that, that is a level of hurt that like I can't even I can't even imagine it is so terrible so so that, I think that is much worse because at least in Barbados I was floating around and I had a bicycle and I would ride where I wanted to go and when I'm on a beach and occasionally a black watchman from one of the hotels would what yeah a black watchman he'd come out and say get off that damn beach um yeah, yeah you know I'd run I'd be scared but I'd be scared on that small territory a beach it's not the same thing as walking down the street now and expecting the same kind of thing from all aspects of people who are passing me so I would say that what you're talking about in the south is much more pervasive the experience is much more um, uh, you know it it's, 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 it's verifies your inferiority 24 hours a day while the other one only verifies it at certain times in the day he talks about extreme environments that's one of his other con- contributions uh, the notion of an extreme, extreme environment, where this hap- thing happens to you, where people are doing things to you that that you, verifying your inferiority all the time and trying to control your energy and so on. Um, and, and 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 he's saying and he's saying for he people in the uh, in, in in the black inner city where this stuff is going on, commonly and everyday. And I'm not talking about now. No, because the experience now in two thousand twenty is not the same thing as when I first came to New York in nineteen fifty six. Um, but 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 it's a different experience living and growing up in the black inner city. That's what Chet Pierce would argue than it would uh, would be you know in in where I actually grew up and I landed in Brooklyn, which you know, is Eastern Parkway which was an integrated neighborhood and people got along pretty well. And everybody walked and sat on the benches on Easter Parkway. Mm -hmm.
5: Let me, let me suggest the possible, I'm not sure whether the, the correct term is the opposite side of the coin, but let me just share this with you. When I first got to Michigan, there were times when I would be working in my laboratory when I did not want to be bothered by anybody coming in from the outside. And that was particularly true of the white vendors and salespeople and even occasionally students who would simply walk in the door and ask for Dr. Jones. So I finally got to the point when they would come in and say, is Dr. Jones here? I would simply say no. (laughs) And of course they would leave because I could not be Dr. Jones. The
1: Jones, right, right, right. Well, I mean, would that experience <laughs> confirm the notion of microaggression or not? I, mean, I don't do you know. know <laughs> I, I guess
5: I'm asking that question, Ezra. I'm not sure whether that confirms it or not.
2: I don't uh, think it does. I, I don't think that that's aggression. That is taking the har- same aggression. <laughs> no, no, it's the real yes. world that they're seeing. And, and we all make assumptions based on what we know. And in other words, how do you recognize the elevator driver? Well, one of the factors in the 1950s or 60s, or whenever it was, was their color. And I don't consider that racist for a person to understand how the world around them works. And for that, for that reason, I also don't see a huge difference between the northern um, aggra- well, whatever you, microaggressions and the southern. The southern is, of course, much more intense because the society is more strictly ordered. But I think that the southerner who expects you to step off the sidewalk for them is no is not particularly racist. They are just, this is reality. So, I mean, I don't know where I'm going, but I don't feel it's real uh, aggression. And I don't feel the person has to be quote unquote racist.
1: <laughs> Let me come back to, to Kent's
2: that's
1: the idea <laughs> <question>. <laughs> let me come back to Kent's question though Kent, you, your question has another dimension to it that actually uh, I, i'd forgotten but but it's an important part of the scholarship relate you know that's relevant here but that in the southern stuff the southern stuff and i don't even know if it's a rel- it's correct to say 2020 but certainly the stories um the stories you know you're talking about the south in the past Um, there's an element here of the value of the black body and the impact on the black body. And there's enormous literature on that now, uh, which of course is not quite the same thing as it, as it was when I was growing up in Barbados, neither was it the same thing in the North. And that is that walking on the sidewalk, one of the implications there that you knew you had to get off the thing because your body was now put into play. So if you get, didn't get off the sidewalk, you don't know what would happen uh, no to your body. So there's a vulnerability to the body because if the woman screams or if uh, you know she calls a policeman and so on, you, you, you know there there there's a price to pay for that stubbornness and staying on the sidewalk. So so you you should think about that in making the distinction between the south and the north when you put the the um, the, the thinking towards trying to weigh what the body was worth and what the potential impact on the black body was especially for you know especially for young adolescent males and so on man i i think that makes a that makes a big difference and and mm-hmm. that's what as i understand some of the literature that i've looked at pretty seriously that's what the parents warned their adolescent males particularly about that the price was too high to pay Mm-hmm. And and uh, they want to be sure when you go downtown, you you are coming back, and that definitely weighed significantly on uh, on people who knew that that was a re- a real potential possibility.
4: I'd say that having someone not sit next to you on the airplane or train, and um, in those experiences I've had, and I could tell people were going to avoid sitting next to me as long as possible. Um, I always it was really a, a, a positive, as far as I was concerned. I might have more space oh, in the right. park, and right. I, let, them go on, let them go on by park. and avoid me as much as they can. But, but John,
1: John, 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 you're, bring, you're bringing up an important point here. And I, I would hate to think that we would terminate the discussion and that I'd left such a, a misapprehension among the group. No, the notion of race is just one mechanism and it operates in the context of a geographical culture. It's important in the US in a certain way, but I never meant to suggest that other people across the globe elsewhere don't suffer in similar ways because of a sense of inferiority and persecution, but along a different mechanistic line. In other words, race, (laughs) may not be the, the, the mechanism being operative, but something else, and, 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 and you know where you see it? Look, look, look at this new book, this new book um, by, um, I'm blocking her name, but the, you know, cast. So that's correct, thank you. The, the important thing in her book, her real contribution from my point of view, everybody will see it differently, but what she does is to make it clear that the idea of caste and the idea of discrimination is not operative internationally. Race is particularized to the U.S., and Wilkerson underlines this point. So, what happens to people because of race in the U.S. doesn't mean that it can't happen in another geography based on some other mechanism. So, yes, I know their societies. I mean. I mean, people talk, people talk about all that all the time, but it, Wilkerson's work essentially says to you, look, caste is the construction of a ladder. And this construction of a ladder, you can find it in different geographies. And in one geography, the ladder is constructed according to race. When you go dealing with Nazi Germany, it's a different thing. And then she talks extensively about the other reference point, which of course is India. Because in India, when you, from the, especially if you come from the outside, you may not even be able to tell the difference among the, mm-hmm. the groups based, based on, 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 on skin color, but they have, have their own cultural ways of differentiating. And, and that's why it's been such an important reference point. In fact, she, as I understand the story, she even said that's, that, that, that um, when Martin Luther King of Bartley, I think it was Martin Luther King when he went to India, you know, somebody said you're 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 an untouchable in the U.S., and he didn't like the comparison, but but the comparison oh, is clear because Dick, because Dickerson is basically saying, well, you know, cut the cut the BS.
5: How how many of us felt that it was important at Harvard for us to feel like we belonged there?
4: Well, no, ours. Well, the question of belonging or not belonging, it was not even it was. Irrelevant, something that wouldn't even occur. I don't think it occurred to many people, really. I mean, to some, but, but to make it, to pose it as a natural, uh, inevitable feeling, you know, that's on him, that's on Pierce.
2: Well, no, 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 let's, let's not oh. go that far. Um, I, I, did, I did not consider that, that as an issue myself. However, now I'm very interested in that issue of, of, of feeling a sense of belonging. And I have started thinking about it in the context of patriotism because I cannot understand that concept of how you can feel that you belong to a nation which is so distant and so multifaceted. I don't know what it means to belong. So I think that this concept of belonging is intriguing, is really intriguing. And in my experience, the people who seem to feel as if they belong are people who are less introspective, people who have less um, sensitivity about what's really going on in society or in a group. Um, In a way, I I disagree. In a way, I'm not sure that Feeling belonging does sharpen your creativity. That's what you said, Ezra, in the beginning. I think yes. That if yes. you feel that you belong, you have more creativity. But in my experience, the people who really feel they belong don't. In my experience, if you really feel you belong, you sort of you feel quite content, and many things are unexamined. And um, but I'm very very intrigued by it. Um, I once did feel I belonged when I was very young in my grade school. And there was 100% unity between me and the school. But I've never had that since. Because now I look around and I see different groups of people. I, I almost don't want to belong to a lot of groups. And I don't know what it means to belong to a huge group. You know, that's very, very large, like Harvard. What does that mean, even? So I, I think that that concept is absolutely intriguing. And well, I, don't, I have not really come to any conclusion about it.
5: I would just second Connie's
3: remarks in saying, I find it very difficult to feel that I belong to a country in which
5: 48% of, of the people voted for Trump.
2: <laughs> exactly. It's very hard.
5: Um, <laughs> I, never, I never thought I belonged at Harvard. Uh, I uh, I worked on dorm crew, so I got there a week early because if you were on scholarship, you had to work. Uh, and then I had uh, roommates from New York City who were Jewish, one of whom unloaded on me about two weeks in sweetmates, uh, uh, about two weeks into freshman year and said, the only reason you're here is in order to keep some other kid from Bronx Science uh, with way better grades and board scores than yours from being here. Uh, And they justified that based on geographic distribution. And I was from Omaha. uh, And, uh, you know, it was years later I learned that actually my board scores were better than his or several other people. Uh, uh, But, uh, uh, I just, there was no point at which I ever felt uh, that I really belonged to be there or that I felt uh, comfortable about it, I mean I felt very proud about it and I felt involved and I went to football games, which not very many people did. I'm I mean, proud of it you, now.
0: Did you, to, did you want to belong? Uh I'm not really
5: sure. I I, I, I high school in uh, Omaha was a bad experience because my dad was a very uh, uh active very liberal democrat and I grew up in uh what was then Omaha's only uh suburb really and it was quiet, almost entirely white and uh almost everyone was better off than my family. And there were girls who, I had just a terrible experience. A girl asked me to take her to the prom. I said I would. And uh, then she came back in tears and said uh, she couldn't because her family said that she couldn't go out with me uh, because of my dad's politics.
6: Uh, I had a similar experience, I think maybe to George, when I got there coming from the Midwest. And I sort of knew, too, I was part of the Midwest quota. Uh, But also being Jewish, I wasn't sure if I was part of the quota. Uh, But I uh, felt uh, sort of in an inferior way because I didn't have that same sense of sophistication that the folks who'd gone to the prep schools in the East did. You know, I got over it after a while, but the first year or two was pretty tough. Uh, but, you know, since then, you know, I've sort of come to terms with it. But uh, so I think after freshman year, you know, I, I can handle it pretty well. Uh,
0: let,
3: let me speak up. I haven't had an opportunity to. And Connie, maybe I'm less sensitive or less introspective. But I think some of this goes back to your to your parents. Uh, I had a white Jewish father and a black Negro mother. Uh, so I grew up in a mixed family, but I grew up in an all-black neighborhood with all-black friends, went to all-black schools, until so I went off to boarding school. My parents always taught me that I was as good as anyone else. And so when you say, did I belong, hell, I had a key to the dorm at Harvard, why, why wouldn't I belong? I didn't even thought about belonging or not belonging. I just went in there. Nobody questioned me as to whether or not I belonged. Maybe I had the right roommates at that point in time. I was on the dorm crew. I cleaned toilets. Uh, that's what I did for four years, 20 hours a week. $1.37 an hour it was
2: the most money I'd ever seen in my life. But. Well, the, the question is, did you identify as a Harvard man? Why not? I went to Harvard.
3: Why wouldn't I be a Harvard man? OK. All right. So, so I, you
2: would say yes. Oh, OK.
4: Yes.
3: I, I, I,
2: I, I did not identify as a Radcliffe girl. Huh?
4: You did not?
2: No. What does it even mean? You know?
3: Well, that's okay. It means you went there, as far as I'm concerned. I'm a Harvard man because I went to Harvard. That's about it.
2: But we've heard people who've said they felt out of place just here. And, you know, and it seems to me that if you feel out of place, do you identify? Are you, are, do you feel that you belong if you feel out of place? I would say no.
3: I, I guess I've never felt out of place.
1: I will put it that way. Right. let me, let me just uh, l- l- let me just say i add, add something else though because i i i'm i'm hesitant when <laughs> when there's such, when there's such agnosticism in the in the air you know what i mean but look the concept of belonging is a very sophisticated and complicated concept It is. I do not think it does justice to the concept. If we just focus on the idea that when you're 20, when you're anywhere between 18 and 20, that you somehow shouldn't be able to master this concept and that it's going to be obvious to you and all that sort of stuff. Let's let's break it down a little bit and try and identify though, whether you think there are some, there's some substance to the concept and some usefulness because that's the issue for me as a clinician. I think, the, the, I think after, after 35, 40 years, I have decided that this is a very important concept and it's an important and it's useful. It's practically useful. Let me, let me just sort of try and give a few examples to, to illustrate what I'm talking about. Look, I went to Harvard and I never used the word belonging. I never used the word belonging. Before, I think I was probably 40. So, but I'm not asking anybody to really try and judge it based on what they think they can recapitulate based on undergraduate years. But never, nevertheless, there's some basic feelings that I can still recapture. I went out for the soccer team. And because of my natural skill and my experience in the game, I felt at ease. I didn't, I didn't waste a lot of energy. I knew what I had to do and I knew once I looked around and I saw the competition, I knew that, you know, I could, I could acquit myself effectively on the soccer field without wasting a lot of psychological or physical energy. I was good. Let's just put it like that. I'm not telling you I was a star. Because so came a year after and he, he had gone to Olympics. I'm not, I'm not suggesting I was O'Hiri, but I didn't need to be Ohiri. I just knew that, that in, the, in the group I was competing against, you know, I was, I was pretty good. And, and uh, it was easy for me to, to keep the ball. You couldn't get the ball off me and so on and so forth. All right. Does that apply? All right. So there are a couple of things there. I, first of all, I held at home. I, I, there was a certain healthful equilibrium. I I was productive in that sense, in that sport arena. And I was creative. My, My game got better over the years and I knew what I could do with the ball. I didn't need to be convinced by anybody else. And I had this pervasive sense of confidence that I was talking about. Now then there are other arenas which I felt hesitant. I, I, I it was no question of, you know, total ease or anything else. But I, I felt hesitant. And then as I as I, as I matured, because I that, that's the other thing with the concept. I'm not suggesting that when you meet certain problems in that particular geography that you, you know, you, you, you fell apart. And so all right. So what am I talking about the private clubs, the private clubs, I just knew I couldn't go there. I knew no one was going to invite me to join it. And I just pulled the blind down, shut the door, and moved on. I didn't spend much on it. But as I grew older and I became more sophisticated in thinking about it, it was outrageous. It was absolutely outrageous. And and as a clinician, would never recommend it now to the organization leadership that they ought to maintain it the way they maintained it in our time. That's just, in my mind, that's ridiculous. So, so clinically, I can say, I did well in the sport arena, I did reasonably well in the academic arena, and so on. But there are some arenas now in retrospect, I look back at, and I say, you've got to be kidding. I, they didn't cause me any trouble, because I just knew, you know, I didn't expect to be sitting next to Rockefeller, and I had actually friends whom I knew before getting oh, there. And I, before going there, and one guy, I can't even remember his name now, but I, it was very I'm striking sorry, because so he yeah. wouldn't even talk to me when, when he met me in the street. That wasn't right. And, and I, wouldn't, I, I, I wouldn't give anybody the impression that, that that was a good experience. And it shouldn't happen. Now, having said that, You must think now of some youngsters whom I've met over the years as a clinician and as an advisor who now can't find arenas where they can perform reasonably well and who start having problems because they start thinking that, you know, they don't have any right there. That presents problems. And believe me, since we were undergraduates, I can tell you the health services at Yale and Harvard have mushroomed, so there are. Am I, am I cut off or? No, no, no. no okay. we can hear you. Yeah. All right. So, so that's the other thing that you must you should not ignore. I don't have to sell the the concept. <laughs> Believe me, there are a lot of people knocking on the doors of the health services at these schools asking for help
2: because they it, feel they don't belong
1: but I don't want to translate it like that. I don't want to translate it like that, but a person doesn't knock on the door and say, I'm here to see you to try and talk about the fact that I don't feel I belong. Adolescents may not even be able to recognize what we're talking about, but they know they're having difficulty. They know that they're not swimming effortlessly. They're having trouble swimming. They're having trouble paddling. Are you talking about
2: mental health services as opposed to physical or both?
1: I 'm I'm talking about both because there are some people who don't want to go to mental health services but who show up to the internists and try and, and try and explain all kinds of stuff. Not everybody knocks on the, the mental health service anyhow i I was <laughs> I was just suggesting uh, some other considerations that we ought to put in the pot uh, to think about um, before before dismissing totally the ideas. Chet Pierce incidentally. Uh, his thinking was absolutely fascinating. And I've actually followed his thinking because I, I never imagined that I would want to live only in, um, in a black context. He, he, he said, uh, and he did a lot of consulting and so on around this issue, he felt, he felt the only way if we're going to integrate the societies that it, the whole thing could work is that blacks had to frequent places like Harvard and Yale because they had to know what whites thought and how whites managed big institutions and so on. And he was quite familiar instead because he spent a long time in Oklahoma um, as a professor out there. And I, I forgot the name of the town, but he, was, he, had been, he gave me lectures on a number of black towns, which had been run very, very well, very effectively in the old days.
3: Ezra, let, let me ask you something, uh, because I'm just very curious. Since all of us on this call have been subject to discrimination, and I can regale you with lots of stories, whether it's because of my Jewish side my side, but I certainly was able to survive. I didn't run, if you like, to the Harvard Medical uh, Institutions for help. I didn't feel any need to. If I came across some discrimination, I just let it, you know, Like a duck, water off my back is what it amounts to. So he's an asshole. I'm not going to listen to him. I'm just going to go on. What causes some people to be able to withstand that? Do we just grow a thick skin because I've had a thick skin all my life? Why do other people have to go and seek help for that?
1: Well, my friend, if I answered your question, I wouldn't be here talking to this group. (laughs) <laughs> I'd be selling the formula for millions of dollars. I wouldn't be willing I wouldn't even be willing to talk to you guys. You'd uh, have to pay to come through my door. <laughs> what you've just observed is precisely why the conversation gets very complicated. Because, because, because if, if you misinterpret what I say, then you don't quite understand the complexity of it. Listen, we all made it through. We all made it through. I'm not raising any questions about that. Uh, we made it through by hook or by crook.
0: Listen, we've been talking for about an hour and 53 minutes now. We haven't heard from Marcy. Marcy ended up, give us all the solutions, Marcy.
6: The thing that has puzzled me for a long time, which I think I talked to some of you about at the last reunion, was uh, why at re- Harvard reunions, I feel An amazing sense of affiliation which means to me it's as if you're in a good family a better family than most of us probably ever had or certainly better than my family and and you feel as if you can say anything and nobody will hold anything against you or use it against you Um, and, and that to me is a wonderful feeling, um, much better than belonging. Belonging is, is not a concept that resonates with me, but that great feeling um, at reunions does. But I I don't know how it comes about, what makes it possible. Um, there was also a feeling of openness and acceptance of everybody even people who in a political context you might have um stereotyped and and even hated like I, I one memory is i was walking i i mean i was standing in a group with some people who were talking about being in Razi. and um it, Hampy Howell and some others came up to the group and, and someone asked him, were you ever in ROTC and Hampy said, Oh God, no. <laughs> and clearly his little clique who he'd been eating with, um, thought they hated anyone who had ever been in Rossi, um, and, and had nothing in common with them. um, but they were very jolly and uh, warm and generous when they were suddenly in this little group um, at, at the reunion. I'm not getting this. Uh, so I'm sorry, I went on too long. I think, it, I think that's an excellent example
4: myself.
6: Donnie,
0: I have another quote for you. Another oh, okay, let hit
2: me with it. I'm listening.
0: And any Negro in America that ain't crazy is crazy.
2: <laughs> okay. <I'll, laughs> All right, okay, on that that's
1: note, good.
4: we're gonna leave. <laughs>